0: DuckDuckGo is finally blocking Microsoft trackers. Amazon has bought Roomba's parent company. Meta and certain hospitals are being sued over data collection. Tutanota is being blocked by Microsoft Teams and much more. Welcome to Surveillance Report 98, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Henry is away this week, making the world a more private and secure place. And of course, the obligatory, Henry's never here, so I beat you guys to it. Before we begin, I wanna remind you guys to please support us if you are able to. There are currently two ways to do so. The first is Patreon, which is an ongoing recurring payment platform, and in return, you get cool little perks, like you get to ask a question that we will answer at the end of the show, you get a copy of our show notes, so you can get a TLDR of what happened this week, and your RSS feed will not include these little promo spots, so you get to get to the news that much faster. The other way, if you are uncomfortable with Patreon or simply just don't want the perks, you can give via Monero. And that is, of course, a one-time payment unless you uh, continually give on a regular basis. We see all of the donations that come in, though, of course, we do not know who you are because Monero is a privacy coin and that's what we like about it. So thank you to all of our supporters, whether it's Monero or Patreon. It is very much appreciated and you help us keep going. Also, before we jump in, I want to remind you guys that we are doing a giveaway for SR100, the 100th episode big milestone for us. We're very excited. We talked all about that last week. If you missed the memo, there's a link in the show notes that has the entry form and all description of the prizes and stuff like that. There's a lot of really cool stuff. Seriously, go check that out if you missed it last week. We're giving away all kinds of cool stuff. It's super awesome. With that, we will jump into our highlight story. There was a lot of big news this week. It was really hard to pick a highlight story, but I think I'm going to go with DuckDuckGo is going to start blocking Microsoft trackers. Finally, so a lot of you guys already know how we got to this story and we know that because some of you bring it up in the comments section every single opportunity you get. DuckDuckGo has made a lot of really poor decisions lately that have not cast them in a very good light. One of the most recent being that they were caught not blocking Microsoft tracking scripts on certain websites. Now, a few pieces of context that are worth having here. Number one, this applies only to their browser, not their search engine. So if you use like the DuckDuckGo app on mobile or something like that. And number two, these are third-party tracking scripts. There were other third-party trackers that they still continue to block, like cookies, for example. DuckDuckGo claims this is because of the contract they have with Microsoft that allows them to proxy Bing and other resources they had to carve out an exception for Microsoft and they were not allowed to uh, block Microsoft. So yeah, that was a really big story. I'm pretty sure it was actually our highlight story last time it happened. And a lot of people were understandably upset at DuckDuckGo. Well, now DuckDuckGo has said that they are finally going to block Microsoft tracking scripts. So you should have full protection everywhere you go if you're using the DuckDuckGo browser. There is one exception. And that is that they will allow bat.bing.com to load once when you uh, click on a link, uh, um, an ad, and that's to allow them to track conversion to know if the ads are working, how many clicks are these ads getting. They did say in their blog post that they are hoping to move to a more privacy-friendly ad analytic solution in the future. So, um, but but for now, this is the agreement that they've made with Microsoft. Um, unfortunately, Henry did not get his notes in. I'm gonna go ahead and. Uh, throw out my personal opinion here, which is I just don't trust them anymore. You know, they, they told half truths before and they hid things. They said like, Oh, we block trackers, but not all trackers. And you know, they weren't upcoming. So, uh, they only owned up to it when they got caught. So my question is, what are they hiding this time? You know, like, okay, they renegotiated with Microsoft and now they can block those Microsoft trackers, but what's the catch? What aren't they telling us? What are we going to find out in six months, a year, two years from now that, they probably should have told us, but they didn't because of the nature of this new contract. So we also, just to throw it out there, when DuckDuckGo originally announced their browser, is specifically for desktop, we, Henry and I both agreed that it doesn't really seem like it brings anything new to the table. And uh, I read a statement from DuckDuckGo's uh, CEO where he responded to the original scandal on Reddit and it's actually kind of funny. He tries to pass all this stuff off as like these unique DuckDuckGo features. Oh, we block trackers. We automatically update, upgrade HTTPS connections and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, most, most websites do that now. Like they, most websites upgrade HTTPS. Uh, Brave blocks trackers. Uh, there's Ublock Origin. if you're not using Brave. Like, they're, they're not bringing anything unique to the table. In my personal opinion, this is not enough to say, go back to using the DuckDuckGo browser. Search engine's a different story. If you want to do that, that's on you. That's really personal preference. But when it comes to the browser, personally, and, and I know Henry would agree with me on this, there's better options out there. There's Brave, there's Firefox, there's LibreWolf, there's Tor browser if you're doing sensitive stuff. If you're on mobile, there's Safari, there's Brave, there's uh, Mole. there's Bromite when they're up to date. So, I mean, there's so many better options out there. I personally would say good for them for finally doing the right thing. In my opinion, the trust is gone and I think there's better options. So as always, you're welcome to disagree. You're welcome to do whatever you want, but that's just my take. Let's go ahead and move into data breaches. We're going to start with anonymous hacktivists breach Russian databases and leak quote massive amounts of data. So this isn't really a breach so much as it is uh, the cumulative effect of multiple breaches. This article is about a security researcher who's been monitoring the hacktivist group Anonymous and has been ranking their claims in order of effectiveness. At the top of this list, he ranked hacking into databases, saying that Anonymous has so far hacked over 2,500 Russian and Belarusian sites and leaked data in, quote, amounts so large, it will take years to review, unquote. Another researcher said, quote, we currently don't even know what to do with all of this information because it's something that we haven't expected to have in such a short period of time, unquote. Anonymous is out there just wrecking shop and leaking tons and tons of Russian data. And we're probably gonna be learning what's in there, like, like they said, for years to come. You know, it's gonna take a while to sort through it. And there's probably gonna be a lot of information that's gonna come out of there. Probably not this week or next week, but in the coming months and years. Our next data breach says cyber criminals stole passwords for accessing 140,000 payment terminals. So these terminals come from, why is this say? I don't know how to pronounce that, I'm sorry. They are a digital payments giant based on Android and they are very popular in the Asia Pacific region. Account passwords, including admin accounts, were stolen via malware on company devices and published to the dark web. And none of the dashboards, like none of the logins had two factor enabled. I think we're at the point now in 2022, we can call that unacceptable, right? Where people just aren't enforcing 2FA like there's just no excuse for that anymore right i hope so as usual the company was very reticent to respond to disclosure efforts they kept canceling meetings and giving people the runaround and they did not give a timeline for fixes they were just kind of like oh, okay heard we'll, we'll get to that the data that was accessible once uh, attackers logged in included names phone numbers email addresses the wi-fi ssid and password in plain text and the ability to make configuration changes they didn't really specify if they were able to access any card data, either stored in the machine or like maybe skim it as it was swiped. But still, that's a lot of data and that's not really cool. The company claims that the vulnerability has been fixed and that they are now enforcing 2FA, but there is no word if they plan to inform customers. My money's on probably not. Our next story says over 3,200 apps leak Twitter API keys, some allowing account hijacks. Quoting the article, cybersecurity researchers have uncovered a set of 3,207 mobile apps that are exposing Twitter API keys to the public, potentially enabling a threat actor to take over users' Twitter accounts that are associated with the app. Unquote. This vulnerability gave attackers the potential ability to read DMs, retweet and like tweets, create and delete tweets, remove and add followers, access account settings, and change display pictures. So just about everything you can do with an account. This was likely the result of a developer error. The article points out that it's actually, unfortunately, really common for developers to forget to remove sensitive stuff in the code before they publish the app. A lot of the times it's easier just to uh, code stuff in to make testing easier, but then they forget to remove that stuff when they push it out. So very unfortunate. Just a reminder to be careful with apps and integrations and stuff like that because you're giving them a lot of control over your accounts. On a similar note, Slack resets passwords after exposing hashes in invitation links. The title kind of says it all. This was another programming error. Slack invites included the hashed passwords in the link. So the good news is they were hashed. They weren't plain text. Slack has since fixed this and is having affected users reset their passwords. And finally, this is an update to a previous story. The headline says Twitter confirms zero day used to expose data of 5.4 million Twitter accounts. We covered this... um, Maybe it was last week or a couple weeks ago, time is a blur in my brain, I apologize. Somebody was selling uh, a lot of sensitive Twitter data on the dark web and Twitter has now owned up to this breach. And they say, "Yep, that was us, we screwed up. The vulnerability has now been patched, so that will stop the data flow. But unfortunately the information is still out there. And we also have another article from uh, Associated Press who reports that this breach has unmasked tons of anonymous accounts which now puts sensitive people like journalists and activists in repressive countries at risk. Personal opinion here, if your data is dangerous in the wrong hands, you shouldn't be collecting it. And that really bugged me. Like Twitter made a statement where they're like, oh, we know this has put people at risk. We're so sorry about that. And it's like, if you know that vulnerable and at-risk people are using your app, Why are you forcing them to hand over things like a SIM card phone number? It's not exactly rocket science, guys. Sorry, that just really bugs me. Companies go around just like collecting all this data, which Twitter got caught abusing that data for marketing in the past. So like they don't even have an excuse in my opinion, but they go around just collecting all this data. And then when something happens, they're just like, you know, BP CEO from South Park. We're sorry. And it's like, guys, just stop collecting data that'll put people at risk. Just stop. They won't. But I had to get on my soapbox for a minute. Okay, moving out of data breaches, we will now go into companies. When I first saw the story, I was kind of like, meh, but then I saw this particular version of the story and I'm like, oh, I see why this is a big deal now. Amazon has bought the company behind Roomba, which will now map the inside of your house. So Amazon has acquired iRobot, who makes the popular Roomba robo vacuums, for $1.7 billion. Now, this particular article goes on mostly to decry Amazon's monopoly and the way that they're invading every single corner of our lives. And I actually wanna quote what they had to say here because I thought it was really insightful. It's a little long, so bear with me. They say, the news also comes weeks after the corporate giant purchased the healthcare company One Medical for $3.9 billion. We talked about that in a previous episode. These recent acquisitions give Amazon access to medical records, maps of customer homes, voice samples through Alexa, home network activity through its Aero brand of mesh routers, videos of neighborhoods and random passers By through ring cameras and a wealth of consumer data through its website. Then consider that a giant portion of the internet runs on Amazon web services, that one out of every 153 Americans is an Amazon worker, that it owns a large and popular grocery store chain, just subsumed Grubhub into its orbit, so on and so forth. Even if you want to avoid it, it's become impossible for Amazon not to touch some portion of your life. Amazon has repeatedly violated labor laws, put its warehouse employees at risk. Uh, in in dangerous work environments and repeatedly shared footage from its ring cameras with cops without getting a warrant there's a lot of reasons to boycott Amazon unquote with Amazon specifically but with a lot of these tech companies that's the risk of these acquisitions it's super easy to say like okay I'm just not going to buy a Roomba and that's fine but you know what about AWS Uh, what about the ring that your neighbor has that you don't have any control over you know what about just all these things man and you know Here in America, unfortunately, we are completely detached from civilization and we charge for medical care. So if your company goes through one medical and that's where you get your health insurance, you don't really have a lot of choices unless you wanna pay thousands of dollars out of pocket for, you know, being healthy. It's just really unfortunate and it's really frustrating that it's becoming so hard just to not use these services. There is some merit to the idea of like, if you don't like it, don't use it. And I accept that. I don't like Google, so I don't use Google. But that doesn't stop Google from putting analytics on every single web page on the internet and collecting my data anyways without my consent. It's really unfortunate and I wish there was something more we could do about it, but at this time there's just not. Okay, our next story is about Meta and it says Meta US hospital sued for using healthcare data to target ads. Quoting the article, a class action lawsuit has been filed in the Northern District of California against Meta, the UCSF Medical Center, and the Dignity Health Medical Foundation, alleging that the organizations are unlawfully collecting sensitive healthcare data about patients for targeted advertising, unquote. So this is actually in direct response to a markup article that we shared a few weeks ago, where they talked about how the MetaPixel was used to track people, even when they logged into the portal and they were now supposed to be in like an encrypted closed off area where they could speak freely to their doctors and, and talk about sensitive information. We'll keep you guys updated. Truthfully, this is probably going to unfold slowly over the course of years as these lawsuits often do, but I think it's good that someone's taking action. Next up, Microsoft is blocking Tudanota users from their own service. Tutanota users cannot register a Microsoft Teams account and Microsoft won't change this. Quoting the article again, currently Microsoft is actively blocking Tutanota email addresses from registering a Microsoft Teams account. When asked to change the current situation, a spokesperson for Microsoft simply said that it would not be possible for them to allow people to register a Teams account with a Tutanota email address, period. We repeatedly tried to solve this issue with Microsoft, but unfortunately our request was ignored, unquote. So the article goes on to argue for more antitrust regulation. And you know, that certainly makes sense. I mean, that that would solve this problem. That would solve uh, the Amazon problem that I was just ranting about with Amazon buying Roomba it would go a long way. And uh, I, I do think Henry and I are both in support of that. But in the meantime, some, some practical advice is, or at least what I took away from it was the value of a custom domain. Because my question now is, if they're blocking tutanota.com or tuta.de or anything like that, will they block the new oil.org? Will they block natebartram.com? Like, they probably won't. So... Yeah, in my opinion, this illustrates the need for custom domains. We should still regulate these companies and like not allow them to be jerks like this, but a practical step that we can take in the meantime, if you have to use Teams for whatever reason, I would go ahead and look into that. Next, we'll jump into research. We're going to start off with Chromium site isolation bypass allows a wide range of attacks on browsers. So quoting the article, a bug in the Chromium project allowed attackers to bypass site isolation protection through iframes and pop-up windows to carry out a host of malicious activities. The security weakness opens the door to a number of exploits, including stealing private information, reading and modifying cookies, and gaining access to microphone and camera feeds. It was recently patched. Uh, I totally recommend you guys read this article, by the way, because this, um, This showed me a lot about how Chromium sandboxing works on a technical level, and I thought it was really fascinating. So I definitely recommend reading the article. And our next research story is an update to a previous story. It says post-quantum encryption contender is taken out by a single core PC and one hour. Quoting the article last month, the US Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, selected four post-quantum computing encryption algorithms to replace algorithms like RSA, Diffie-Hellman, and elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, which are unable to withstand attacks from quantum computers. The new attack breaks Psyche, S-I-K-E, which is one of the latter four additional algorithms. The attack has no impact on the four other post-quantum computing algorithms selected by NIST as approved standards, all of which rely on completely different mathematical techniques than Psyche. The paper describes a technique that uses complex mathematics and a single traditional PC to recover the encryption keys protecting the Psyche-protected transactions. The entire process requires only about an an hour of time This feat makes the researchers eligible for a $50,000 reward from Microsoft, which is pretty good payout for an hour of time. Like, damn, dude, that's more than a lot of people make in a year. So Psyche is actually the second NIST designated post-quantum computing candidate to be invalidated this year. There was another one earlier this year. And researchers say that Psyche may actually still be usable if it becomes a two-step process. And as usual, the article goes into all the technical details here explaining how it works and how Psyche may still be usable. That's a may, by the way. That's not like... Yeah, if we just fix this, it's totally usable. It's more like, well, we could do this and see what happens, and it might still be usable. But personally, I think this is good. I mean, I would rather things be caught now, and it's like, oh, never mind, this isn't a, a good idea, as opposed to pushing it out into uh, the mainstream and general usage, and then we find out next time there's an Equifax data breach that no, nope, that didn't work. But again, it's it's good that we're doing this kind of research and preparing for quantum computing because it is coming. With that, we will move into politics. And we're going to start off with uh, former whistleblower police officers are settling a lawsuit after an alleged misuse of a police database. So this comes from the Kern High School District in California, quoting the article, the controversy surrounding the California Law Enforcement Telecommunication System, or CLETS, started in 2015 when KHSD Athletics Director Stan Green Asked police chief to keep track of student athletes' license plates to ensure they lived in the district by using CLETS, according to the Californian's previous reports. CLETS is a database available to every law enforcement agency across the state and is only intended for use during investigations. A person can be charged with a misdemeanor or felony for divulging information from CLETS to an unauthorized person. So basically, this coach came up to the police chief and was like, hey, can you keep track of all the student athletes and their license plates and make sure they actually live in the district? The police chief Loptegei uh, ref- claims that he refused to help out and that the, uh, the athletics director was like, well, the last police chief did it. No problem. He didn't have any issues with it. At which point guy was like, well, that's illegal. So I'm going to go to the DA and try to press charges. And the DA didn't want to get involved because there wasn't a lot of evidence. Like most of our stories, I have opinions on this one, but a lot of them aren't really relevant to, uh. Privacy and security in our audience. I think the takeaway here is um, abuse of power is very common. Uh, well, I don't know if I want to say very common. It's very possible at at all levels. We've covered stories in the past about the NYPD using their surveillance system to like stalk their girlfriends and their exes. Edward Snowden talked about how at the NSA, uh, when people would pull like nude photos, it was just courtesy around the office to pass them around and be like, "Yo, check this girl out. She's hot." So, I mean where the potential for abuse exists no matter how small it will happen even if it's just making sure people live in the right district our next story comes from the uk where it says facial recognition smartwatches will be used to monitor foreign offenders in the uk this will apply to migrants who have been convicted of criminal offenses and they will be required to scan their faces up to five times a day using smartwatches installed with facial recognition technology. Quoting the article, those obliged to wear the devices will need to complete periodic monitoring checks throughout the day by taking a photograph of themselves on a smartwatch with information including their names, date of birth, nationality, and photographs stored for up to six years. Locations will be tracked 24/7, allowing trail uh, trail monitoring data to be recorded. Photographs taken using the smartwatches will be cross-checked against biometric facial on home office systems and the image verification, if the image verification fails, a check must be performed manually. The data will be shared with the Home Office, Ministry of Justice, and the police, with the Home Office officials adding, the sharing of data to police colleagues is not new, unquote. It's also worth noting that uh, the number of watches ordered and the cost was redacted in the contract that was published along with this story. I think the big thing to note here is the uh, this will start off with migrants who have been convicted of a criminal offense. We've mentioned this before. Cory Doctorow calls this the shitty tech adoption curve. And this is basically where we start off by pushing this technology on people that less people care about. You know, I I mean, it's sad to admit, but generally speaking, most Americans don't care about the Afghan people who are, you know, being screwed over by all their social media posts. Now that the Taliban's back in charge, like they care, but not enough to do anything about it. Like, oh, that sucks, but doesn't really concern me. And that's why they're starting this with like migrants and specifically migrants who have been convicted of a criminal offense. We're starting off with the foreigners and the criminals, but then after a while, it's just going to be all migrants. Then it's going to be all migrants and domestic criminals. And then it's just going to be everybody. This is like just how this stuff goes. And I I know that sounds for, for new listeners or maybe people who aren't super deep into privacy, that sounds really paranoid. And I hope you're right, but history has shown us that that potential is absolutely there. And that this is a way of like, acclimatizing us to the water on that note, let's go to Australia. This is one of the wildest stories I've ever heard. So the headline says blockade, Australia, climate activists can't use encrypted apps must let police access phone. Greg rolls, who was a member of the blockade, Australia, climate change protest group is forbidden from using encrypted messengers. Such as signal is only allowed to have one phone must turn over devices and passwords to the police whenever they ask, and is not allowed to associate in any way with 38 people even in the form of liking their posts on social media. And this is because Australia passed a law prohibiting any activities that, quote, shut down major economic activities, unquote. So apparently this guy uh, was protesting in the road, like was bo- blocking traffic. And that was enough to, to get him in this uh, this particular process. The article goes on to talk about like other similar punishments. Uh, apparently this one is, uh, I believe the words they used were unusual and extreme. But it's not without precedent. There's other stories that uh, maybe haven't gone quite this far, but have shown like elements and bits and pieces. And this is just really unsettling. Not not only because of the privacy aspect of it, but uh, in my opinion, also like the freedom freedom aspect of it. Like you can't protest now. That's basically what they did was they protested. They've criminalized protesting. Getting off my soapbox and back on topic. Uh, Greg, when he was talking to the reporters, he pointed out that this is actually like, in addition to being really extreme, it's also overly broad and kind of worrying. Like, you know, he's like, okay, so what if I check my bank account? Like technically that traffic is encrypted with TLS and, you know, I have to log in to get to my bank account and that's an encrypted area of the website. Like, does that count as using an encrypted app? Uh, somebody in my matrix room, when this story was shared, they pointed out like, what about iMessage? Like. Is that encrypted? Like if he talks to another iPhone user, does he have to like enable iCloud so the police can access the messages? Like it's, this is worrying on so many levels. And finally, we're gonna go to India where there's some potentially good news. India has withdrawn a personal data protection bill that alarmed tech giants. Quoting the article, the Indian government has withdrawn its long-awaited personal data protection bill that drew scrutiny from several privacy advocates and tech giants who feared the legislation could restrict how they manage sensitive information while giving government broad powers to access it. The personal data protection bill sought to empower Indian citizens with rights relating to their data. India, the world's second largest internet market, has seen an explosion of personal data in the past decade as hundreds of citizens came online for the first time and started consuming scores of apps. But there has been uncertainty on how much power the individuals, private companies, and government agencies have over it, unquote. From from what I gathered from this article, the general tone is this bill had a lot of problems. Both, uh, like the article said, both privacy people and tech giants were like, we're not a fan of this. But at the same time, even the the privacy advocates who were interviewed in this article were like, well, we don't want the the privacy discussion to stop altogether in India. We do still want a personal data protection bill, but we want something that's better. And we want something that doesn't give the government a crap ton of gray area when it comes to accessing data. So hopefully – We'll see this uh, the privacy conversation continue and hopefully we'll see a new bill rise up and take the place of this one. But hopefully that one will be open to a little bit more public input and probably be overall better for the Indian citizens. As with everything, we'll keep you updated if we hear anything. With that, we'll move into free and open source software news and we're going to start off with something really cool. Threema Libre, a full independence from Google services. So this is now available in f This is a version of Threema that is completely open source. All proprietary dependencies have been removed. There's no Google. There are no third parties at all. Notifications use Threema Push, which we talked about in a previous uh, episode. It's Threema's like open source uh, push notification solution. It does not even give you the option to use Google as a fallback. And it supports reproducible builds, so you can verify yourself that that's all happening. And of course, it is still fully open source. So congratulations, Threema. That is really awesome news. Um, I think I have a review for Threema coming up soon, so I will try that out, and I look forward to it. Next up, Linux 5.19 has been released, and notably Linus Torvalds released it from an Apple Silicon MacBook. So as far as the release itself, this mainly includes a lot more CPU support. They listed off like half a dozen different CPUs that have been improved, and it offers some performance improvements. Notably though, Linus Torvalds released this from an ARM MacBook, suggesting that we may finally see some major improvements to ARM-based Linux distros, which will trickle down to mainstream use which is good news because it looks like a lot of computers are moving in an ARM-based direction. And if we want to continue to use Linux, then we need Linux to support that kind of architecture. And finally, Linux Mint 21 Cinnamon is out. If you're a Linux Mint user, um, I like Linux Mint. That was actually my first distro where I got comfortable and kind of cut my teeth on Linux. It has a very uh, Windows XP kind of feel to it. So it was very comfortable and easy for me to get the hang of it. And it has a lot of support. So it was easy for me to go out and research my problems and just generally, get the feel of how Linux worked. This new version comes with some really cool stuff, actually better Bluetooth support, new thumbnails for previously unsupported file types, sticky notes. That was actually really cool. I'm not even a sticky notes user. When I saw that screenshot, I was like, Ooh, this is cool. A process monitor, X app improvements, better window managers, and better printer scanner support, and much, much more. So cool, cool stuff. If you're a Linux Mint user, that looks really promising. Go check that out. And if you know anybody who's interested in Linux, Mint is a really good, place for them to start. Okay, now we're gonna move into our final news section, uh, Misfits. We're gonna start off with a story that says, kids are back in the classroom and laptops are still spying on them. So this is an article that discusses how surveillance technology rose to prominence during lockdown, you know, when students were remote learning and teachers had to kind of be able to uh, manage students remotely, and unfortunately, that technology looks like it's here to stay. 89% of the teachers surveyed said that they plan to continue using software that monitors student devices. This article notes that the rise in surveillance has led to an increase in police involvement, possibly shortening the so-called school-to-prison pipeline, which is a thing. The article just kind of goes on to outline a lot of the concerns with this technology. For example, quoting the article, one high school newspaper reported that the district used monitoring software to reveal a student's sexuality and out the student to their parents. Another report revealed that 13% of students knew someone who had been outed as a result of this software. Particularly alarming story in this article, it says that there were um, multiple students, this wasn't one story, multiple students plugged their phones in, like their personal devices, they them into the computers to charge through the usb at which point the monitoring software has access to their device and they catch content like personal messages nudes things like that fortunately a a lot of schools seem to have told their students like don't plug your stuff into these computers like keep your devices separate which is good but also like maybe don't be so invasive in the first place how about that but yeah this is kind of a long article but it is definitely worth a read because there's it's packed full of information and it's worth knowing about, especially if you're a parent So definitely check that out. And our final story says 35,000 code repos not hacked, but clones flood GitHub to serve malware. Quoting the article, thousands of GitHub repositories were copied with their clones altered to include malware, a software engineer discovered. While cloning open source repositories is a common development practice and even encouraged among developers, this case involves threat actors creating copies of legitimate projects, but tainting these with malicious code to target unsuspecting developers with their malicious clones unquote. It says GitHub has removed most of these, but I think it's safe to say we can't expect them to get all of them. So the moral of the story here is always check your sources and make sure they're legit. We talk about that with apps. We talk about that with pretty much everything. You know, when you're downloading something, especially like adding repos to, to Linux and stuff like that, make sure you check your sources, make sure they're legit, always verify. And with that, we're going to move into the Q and A section. We have some really good questions this week. First up from Q Solaris what is your stance on antivirus software? The software needs complete access to your files, which means they could get uploaded to a company server. On the other hand, if critical malware spreads, those companies are normally on the front line of reverse engineering and detecting it. He goes on to say, at the moment, I solely rely on Defender for Windows and on Linux. I only have my judgment of websites and downloads. So um, personally, I don't recommend most antivirus software and I think Henry's in the same boat. Windows Defender has actually come a very, very long way. Like if, if you uh, do some some research online, you'll see that most experts agree. Windows Defender has come a very long way. It's very powerful. Um, you don't really need a third-party antivirus unless you have a specific need for it. Like if you suspect you've been infected and you're trying to remove that infection or if uh, like if you run a large company and – your users click everything on impulse or you just need to be able to remotely manage and scan their computers. Those are kind of the times you would need a third-party antivirus. But generally speaking, if you use Windows, Defender is totally great. Linux, um, I'm with you. I don't really use any antivirus there either. But if you feel the need, I know Clam AV is really, really popular. That's not to say it's perfect. I know somebody's going to complain about it in the comments. But if you keep your stuff up to date, if you're careful what you click on, and you just kind of use some basic common sense and stop and think before clicking on links and only get things from legitimate sources, then I don't think you really need a whole lot of AV personally. Paco had a question. I just wanted to throw this one in there. Uh, He said, have you ever watched TV show, Mr. Robot? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? It's my personal favorite TV show of all time. And I would say it probably kickstarted my interest in privacy, security, tech space. I just wanted to throw that in there because I am also a huge Mr. Robot fan. My wife is slowly working her way through it. She's got through season one. We're on season two now. It's it's a very heavy show, so we can only watch a little bit at a time. But yeah, I'm with you. I love that show. It was so awesome. I'm so sad it, it didn't get a fifth season. Um, for those who haven't seen it, it does wrap up, so it's totally worth watching. It's not like it ends on a cliffhanger. But yeah, amazing show. I'm with you. Great show. I love it so much. And our final question comes from M. So M says that someone else had a, a good question that we didn't cover before about using your own domain name for emails and how that creates a point that can be used to track you online. And then they also had a similar question about um, self-hosting things. Like the examples they use are if you mine Monero or you run a Tor relay, not an exit relay. um, If you run those out of your home, then your IP address becomes discoverable in public. Their their question I think is like, when should you use a VPS versus when should you use a a public instance? And um, this is actually something I struggle with too. On the one hand, um, I, I want, Especially with things that aren't really encrypted, like Nextcloud and Jellyfin, I don't want the the service provider peeking in on that, and you know, possibly doing something that violates the terms of service. And also, like I do consulting for people, so I don't want my clients, you know, notes and contact info and contracts and stuff uploaded on a cloud that I don't control. Um, so I get that, but at the same time, I I do personally worry about like uh, stability. Um, I live in a state. With a very poor power grid, so I worry about power outages, and I, I worry about um, electricity and and uh, you know the elect- the electrical bill of like self hosting tons of things and stuff like that. It's I don't think there really are any easy answers, but I I do think your mind is in the right place. Ideally, the more you can self host at home, the better because you have more control over it. But on the other hand, if you want to open that thing up to the public, then yes, you are putting a lot of risk on yourself in terms of exposing your IP address, clogging down your residential bandwidth, um, you know, possibly letting attackers into your home if they manage to breach the device and pivot from there. So I think that's the big, big decider for me is, you know, if it's something I'm just hosting for me and maybe some friends and family, I'll host it out of my home. But if it's a public service for other people, then I definitely want to put that out there uh, on a VPS somewhere. That's that's kind of how I approach it. And as for the the using your own domains, not to go too long, but my personal advice, I actually made a video about this recently. My personal advice for that is to use domains for things that you absolutely cannot afford to lose, because in a way, it could theoretically be used to like pinpoint you and track you. But at the same time, if it's uh, like a bank account or medical or you know your Bitwarden, like something you absolutely cannot afford to lose access to. In my opinion, it's kind of worth the trade-off to have the control over that email address. So I hope that was helpful. And that's it for this week. We had DuckDuckGo finally block Microsoft trackers as they should have been all along. Amazon has expanded their surveillance by buying iRobot. Meta and other hospitals are being sued over data collection. We'll keep you guys updated. Tutanota is unfortunately being blocked by Microsoft and hopefully we'll have an update on that and much, much more. Again, it was a really busy week. Once again, we want to ask you guys to support us if you are able to. We have Patreon, where you can pay with fiat currency. It's recurring. You get to ask us questions. You get a TLDR of the show notes. You get a show feed that is free of these little promo segments. If you prefer not to use Patreon for any reason... We also offer Monero and that can be done by using the QR code on the screen right now. We don't see anything about you because Monero is a privacy coin, but we do see the donations. They have been immensely helpful. Thank you guys so much for supporting us and keeping us going. Last but not least, we also want to remind you that there is a giveaway happening for episode 100. We're giving away all kinds of really cool stuff. There is a full uh, link in the show notes where you can get a full list of the possible prizes as well as enter if that interests you. We wanna thank you for listening to Surveillance Report. The final thing we wanna ask of you, share the podcast around, make sure you are subscribed. If you're on a platform that allows you to give ratings, please give us a rating. We are trying to reach as many people as possible with the message of privacy and you can help us do that. Thank you again for listening and we will see you next week.